This is recording number 10800 from the Teaching Ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the first message in the Outpouring series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, January 25, 2009. This message is titled, The Promise of the Father. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Now, park something there and flip back two books to the Gospel of Luke. And first we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. Now, I asked you to turn to the Gospel of Luke because I want you to read with me just the very first Uh, part of chapter 1 where it says inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us just as those who uh, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account most excellent Theophilus that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, the reason I had you turn here is because we're getting introduced to the writer of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. They are um, uh, partners, volume one, volume two. Luke was a physician, and as such, a person who uh, was a critical thinker. Uh, He was inquisitive. He was no, no dupe. You know, he was a, uh, an intelligent man, learned man. Now, of course, medicine in those days was not the same as it is now, but it required the same skill set and the same um, commitment to thoroughness and uh, to following evidence. Uh, and so he set about to write an account, a record of the life, of Je- life and ministry of Jesus. And that's what became the Gospel of Luke. And he was writing to someone named Theophilus. And he uses the term most excellent, Theophilus. So although we don't know who this guy was, there's a lot of specu- speculation about that, but we don't know who he was. And in fact, it's possible he may have been imaginary. Somebody that Luke was writing to to give his, his writing a focus and a point. Uh, but the fact that he writes most excellent Theophilus, it's the kind of a it's the kind of a statement you would make to someone of high office, and uh, it seems unlikely that he would uh, use that kind of terminology unless this person was really um, a, a, a real person in a position of authority who wanted to know. So Luke is writing him a record of the life and ministry of Jesus. Then the book of Acts uh, begins... Uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 saying, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Remember, this is a, a physician who is not inclined to just accept mythology. And he's making the statement to whoever this 
person Theophilus was and to all who would read it, uh, including you and me today, he's saying that Jesus was presented alive by many infallible proofs. That's the language of discipline. That's the language of a disciplined mind. And he says, he's making uh, the statement that Jesus is alive and we can count on that fact. Uh, To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to ask you to flip back to the Gospel of Luke and the very end of, uh, of Luke's Gospel, chapter uh, 24. And uh, let me just kind of tie things up here a bit before we read some there as well. This is going to be primarily introduction today. So Luke presents this uh, record, a thorough, thoughtful uh, record of the uh, life and ministry of Jesus contained in the book of Luke. But then he says, I, what I have previously written to you, Theophilus, is only about what Jesus began to do. And in a sense, he's saying, now let me tell you the rest of the story. And, and so the, go- the book of Acts picks up where the gospel leaves off. This is book two. There'll be at the beginning, you'll see a little bit of a, um, you know, a, a look back at what, uh, at the close of the gospel of Luke so he can bridge the, the narrative. And then he's going to show us what happens, the amazing story of what happens when the church is born. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that caused waves to radiate from the, the life and ministry of people like you and me who's, who have been impacted by the gospel. The, Luke, the gospel of Luke tells about the life and ministry of Jesus. Now he's going to tell us about the life and ministry of people impacted by Jesus and how, he, uh, and how that his gospel, his good news, spreads to, to the whole known world and changes lives in powerful and miraculous ways. I put as a sub- subtitle up here, Primitive Christianity. I struggle over the word primitive because most of us, when we think of that word, we think of something less desirable, um, less refined, less mature. And, and that is certainly true. What we read about in the, in the book of Acts is a church that is less refined. It is over the arc of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, we will see the church become more refined and more mature, and that's as it should be. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's intended. But it's still so precious to be able to observe the dynamic that was among a people who's, who didn't know, you know, you were, the liturgy. They had, did, had no liturgy. They didn't know the traditions because they didn't have any traditions. I remember the first time I ever entered into a Catholic church. And you know I have no brief against Catholicism. Uh, I know very dear and precious saints of God who are Catholics. And so I'm not here today to, to uh, you know, uh, um, degrade or diminish anything about that. 
But I, it was totally foreign to me because I wasn't raised in a Catholic church. And so I visited for the first time, and there's this thing there. <laughs> and I'm and I, in the seat, in the pew, or in the, you know, attached to the pew in front of me, and I'm not sure what it is. You know, and I'm watching people, and I f- and finally figure out, oh, they, they kneel on this thing. And then they seemed to know what they were supposed to say at various times. You know, the priest would say something, and then everybody would say something, and I'm, and I'm, looking, I'm looking for the screen. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out what... A, and, and then I, I see, oh, there's something here in the, in the back of the pew that, that tells you where, what you're... I just had no clue about the whole liturgy and the, the whole tradition of the thing. I was lost. You, you know, we do our best here at Crossroads to minimize the impact of our traditions because they're ones we have them. You know, we have them. Crossroads has a liturgy. Uh, it, it may not be quite uh, the same as some of the churches you have come from, but, you know, it's just the nature of people. We develop patterns and habits and things we're comfortable with. And so, but we, we make a conscious effort to try to minimize the barrier that that poses to visitors. And if you're visiting with us today, I hope you, I hope you might be able to say amen to that, that there was, <laughs> that there was something recognizable uh, that happened here this morning. You didn't feel like you had arrived on, on Mars or something. Um, but as we look at the book of Acts, we see a church that doesn't have a lot of trappings yet. And so there's something about the raw, urgent, vital power of that that I believe with all my heart God wants to um, teach us by and shape us in. That we would never lose that. And to what degree, whatever degree we may have lost it, we would rediscover that. Because, I don't know, I read the book of Acts and I think, man, my, my Christian life is not a lot like this. You know, I want this. <laughs> I want this. This is like, I just got back from Disneyland, so this is in my mind. This is like Space Mountain. <laughs> Sometimes my Christianity is like the Enchanted Tiki Room. <laughs> I want this. All right, I ask you to turn to the end of, of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, because Luke, as he opens the book of Acts, is going to refer to these events. So begin with me at verse 45, chapter 24, Gospel of Luke. And he opened their understanding. This is Jesus right before his ascension into heaven. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Because it's all just a little puzzling to the disciples. You know, all this that's going on, Jesus died. They didn't expect that. He's rose from the dead. They certainly didn't expect that. They don't know what's going on or how, what they ought to be doing about it. And so Jesus opens their understanding to the scriptures. Because they have the Hebrew scriptures. And now, oh, I didn't know. I didn't realize. Verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. He's saying all this happened so that this good news about the remission of sins, that sin has been paid for. The guilt can be removed out of the picture of people's lives and they can have a relationship with God where that isn't in the way anymore. 
This good news is supposed to be preached to all the, all the world. And guess who gets to do that? You. Behold, I send the promise of my Father. We're going to find out that he's talking there about the Holy Spirit. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. In other words, he's saying to them, look, you guys, I, I've, I have commissioned and called you to something far beyond yourselves. I know you're thinking right now, oh, we're supposed to be the bearers of this gospel? You're counting on us, this ragtag bunch of fishermen? We're supposed to take this gospel to the whole world? You've got another thing coming. And Jesus says, I know, I know, I know. But I'm going to send you the promise of the Father. Now just park it. Wait. Don't even budge from this place. Stay right here in Jerusalem until you are endued with power. That word endued in the original language means clothed with. I'm not going to, he says, don't, don't be afraid. It's not like you're going to be sitting there one day and I'm just going to zap you like with a bolt of lightning or something. <laughs> It's not like you're going to all of a sudden... You know, it's not going to be like that. He said, it's going to be like, a, like clothing that you step out of these old dark garments and into something wonderful. And he said, now when that happens, watch out. Watch out. But don't try to do this on your own. Wait. There's a surprise coming. All right. Verse 4 of chapter 1... Acts. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. This is the part where Luke is um, reminding Theophilus of the end of book one, so that he can catch him up to speed now with, what's, with the transition into book two. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized or immersed in or clothed with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And this is just so like us. <laughs> Jesus is talking about this grand and glorious spiritual sacred adventure that he's calling them to. And what they want to know is, are you going to duke it out with the Romans so that we can get back our country? We always want to kind of turn it around to what's in it for me. <laughs> what's this going to do for me? And Jesus is always wanting to say, it's not about you. It's about my kingdom, my heart for those who are lost. Because, listen, this life is a blink of an eye. It's like a vapor, the Bible says. It's going to pass. It's about eternity. Get your eyes off the temporal I know it's uncomfortable being under the thumb of the Roman government. That, and that will end. He says it. He says, it's not, uh, verse 7, it's not for you to know times or seasons. He's, he's indicating that what you're asking me about, that's all going to get taken care of. But, verse 8, and this is the outline for the whole book of Acts. But you shall receive power. And the word in the original language there is dunamis, like dynamite. 
This is potent stuff he's talking about. You shall receive power, dynamic power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The reason why the imagery on the screen is there with these drops of water and the radiating ripples or waves that that come out from that is because that's what Jesus was describing. He said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on you. And the impact and the effect of that explosion of God's power upon you is going to cause radiating waves of my uh, mercy and my grace to touch many, many lives. It's going to start in Jerusalem, then Judea. And Judea was like the county. So Vallejo, Solano County, Samaria, Napa County, the next county over, and the ends of the earth. And um, so I want to talk to you a little bit today before we go home in the next probably 10, 15 minutes about who in the heck is the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure I could say heck in church, but I just did. So. <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles back one book to John. So just before the book of Acts is the Gospel of John. When you find that, turn to chapter 16. Because if we're supposed to, and we will find out next week, that this promise that Jesus was making to his disciples is one that extends to all of us as well. But if, if, if this promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the unimaginable uh, consequences of the outflow of that is, is, involves me, then I need to know who, who the Holy Spirit is. And Jesus talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, but um, one of the places where uh, he does that is in John 16. Look at verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you, go- where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So they're, they're kind of understanding that he's saying something to them about leaving them behind, and they're not really happy about that. Verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine these guys, the concept of it's going to be better for us if our master is gone? It must have just been more than they could comprehend. But that's what Jesus is trying to say to them. Look, I need to go, and here's why. Uh, if I go away, uh, or I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will do these things. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they don't believe me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you, 
All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So who is the Holy Spirit? First of all, he's the third person of the Trinity. The Bible teaches and we believe that God is three in one. Not three gods. One God. And not just one God that has three ways of manifesting himself, but one God that has three distinct persons within that one, within that unity. I know, it's a tough concept. But that's what we believe and that's what the Bible teaches. Three in one. We have, a, and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And I don't mean third in ranking order, like, you know, he's at the bottom of the list of three. He is God, the Holy Spirit. Not some sort of mystical force. You know, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Holy Spirit does not equal force, the force. Um, He is God. He is God. And what is his role? Well, Jesus spells it out. He says he comforts. His name. He says the helper. Now, the original uh, word there in the Greek for helper is um, parakletos. But it means one who comes alongside to help. Helper. He, and that's why Jesus said it's important for me to go because I can send then, I can send the Holy Spirit who will be with you, walking with you, coming alongside to help. He is the comforter and he does that in these ways. He, he comforts with empathy, empathy, excuse me. Sympathy and empathy are different. We get them confused. There's kind of, well, they are synonyms, but not really. Sympathy means I feel for you. I feel your pain, as uh, former President Clinton once said. I feel your pain. And, that, and I, don't, I didn't mean to say he didn't really genuinely feel the pain. He probably did. But empathy is, a, is deeper than that. It means not only do I feel your pain, I've been through it. I, I am intimately aware of what you're going through. And, and all of us love it when we're going through tough t- times when we can get a hold of someone who's marked a path, who's already walked it, who's already been there, right? The Holy Spirit is uh, our comforter and he knows uh, absolutely every detail of anything you could ever face and, and he knows the way through it. He knows the way through it. He also comforts with encouragement. My wife, I get to be married to an encourager. And, I, uh, and if you're not, I feel for, sorry for you. Because every single day, I get to have someone who is always, always cheering me on. I pick up the phone and, and she, she knows I'm, I'm a terrible. And you know. You know this if you've ever called me. I'm a terrible person on the phone. <laughs> what? Hey. Hello. You know. <laughs> Uh huh. Click. I mean, that's me. <clears throat> I I never understood these people who get on the phone and just rattle on for for ages. It's just not in my nature. Uh, but anyway, that's another story. But 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 this this dear woman blasts through that that thing that facade that greets her on the other end of the phone, and her encouragement reaches my heart. 
This, I, can, I can hear the smile on her face. And it does something to my soul. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is right with me all the time. The, the member of the Godhead who is cheering me on. And he also comforts with exhortation. Exhortation means, it's kind of like encouragement. It's a different form. It's the kind of encouragement when you are, when you're down and discouraged and they get in your face and say, you, listen to me, you can do this, you know. <laughs> I'm picking on her because she'll encourage me afterwards. Some of you wouldn't. <laughs> You know what that's like. You know when you need a kick in the pants, right? And how valuable that is at times. And the Holy Spirit is the one, the member of the Godhead, whose job it is to get in my face sometimes and say, look, you can't do this. Um, it also tells us that he convinces. It says um, uh, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That word convict means convinces of sin, it says, because they've rejected me. Verse 9 says I, that the Holy Spirit convicts of sin because they do not believe in me. Now, a lot of times we, we, uh, we think it's our job to convince people that they're sinners. In fact, you'll see people on the street with banners and say, that say, you are a filthy, rotten sinner. Maybe not to those words, but, or, you know, exact words, but you need Jesus. How, how appealing is that? <laughs> There's, there's something just not, I don't know. I, I hate to, I shouldn't, I have a friend who does that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't <laughs> say that. But, but anyway, to me, it just, it's not that, not that appealing, especially since it's not really my job to convince people that they're sinners. And I've found that you don't really have to work too hard at that because the Holy Spirit is very good at it. And he never, ever, 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 ever condemns. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation because the spirit of God when he convinces us of sin it's not so that we will feel bad about ourselves it's that we will feel good about what Jesus has done to cover my sin that's what it's about he convinces of sin he also convinces of uh, righteousness and what that means is that when, you're, uh, when you come to a, a place and you're not quite sure what would be the right thing to do. The Holy Spirit is there to guide us. He's the one that is always with us to show us. Now, we don't always listen, do we? But he's there to show us the right thing, the righteousness of God. And he also convinces of judgment. And it says here, it says that he convinces of judgment, verse 11, because the ruler of this world is judged. It's not the Holy Spirit going around convincing you, listen, buddy, you're going to burn in hell. It's not that. We think that sometimes when we read this stuff. But it's not, it says that he convinces of judgment because the who has been judged. Satan. Satan, the ruler of this world, has been judged. And so he, part of his job is when the devil is roaring in your face, the Holy Spirit steps in and says, don't bother with this guy. His teeth are knocked out. He's all bark, no bite. He's already been judged. Boy, does that encourage you. Boy, does that free you. In those times when the devil is trying to shout you down. You know what I mean. And the Holy Spirit is there to say, this is nothing. Nothing. He has been judged. 
Uh, it also tells us that he communicates, and it tells us three things he communicates. The Holy Spirit's job is to communicate to us the words of Jesus. It says here that um, the spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. Thank God. I don't know what it's like to pick this book up and, and, and just your heart just sinks when you think about all of these words and how in the world am I supposed to make sense of all this? Well, you're not alone in that. The Holy Spirit is available to us to teach us. He will guide us into all truth. I can't tell you how often this happens to me. When, and you, I could, I could have many of you stand up right now and give similar testimonies where I'm reading this passage and it's almost like the Holy Spirit just runs his divine highlighter over a, over a phrase or a passage and it just leaps off the page and all of a sudden my mind is aware of what God is saying to me. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. He also communicates the will of Jesus. It says, he will not, in verse 13, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit how many times have you been at a crossroads where you, you don't, pardon the pun with our church name, but you've been at a crossroads where you, uh, you're not sure to go left or right? Come on, how many of you have been there? I get this question all the time, Pastor, I don't know what to do. What should I do? I'm stuck. Uh, the Holy Spirit is there to tell us the will of Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that when you come to that, that crossroads, you're not sure whether to go to the right or left. There will be a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. And finally, uh, he communicates the wonder of Jesus. Verse 14 says, he will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. When we sing uh, here on Sunday mornings or when we stop and just raise our voices or clap our hands or whatever form our worship takes, it's the Holy Spirit that's driving that, that's energizing that, that's causing my heart to ring with passion and with uh, pleasure and praise for God. And then as we read in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he also, his, his role is to, to capacitate or empower he wants to fill you and me with supernatural power. I, I, you can't see it if you're listening by recording, but I've, I've used a type of font on the screen that emphasizes the natural part of the word supernatural because a lot of us tend to be, uh, maybe, uh, maybe that's a strong, uh, too strong a word. Many people are a little sheepish, a little standoffish, about the notion of really relinquishing themselves to the ministry of the Holy Spirit as described in the, in, the, uh, in the passage we read this morning and then carrying on through the book of Acts because it seems so other, so unknown, so different. But dear one, it's not at all. It is the most natural way to live. It's the way we were intended to live. When you read through the exciting things that transpire in the book of Acts and you think, that can't happen. That just can't happen. That is just too, too much. Too much. Dear one, it isn't. 
That's what we were, the way we were designed to live. The Holy Spirit empowers us to experience life as God intended for us. 